Hello and welcome back to the Venture Equity Project Podcast. Today we are so excited to have Richard Long on the podcast today. Richard is an expert in the DAI space and has trained and supported thousands of leaders in small to mid-sized businesses to help deepen their DEI lens and strategy. So we're going to dive right into it and start off with what is bias training and how does it apply to the venture space? Yeah, so bias training is if we start at the highest level, right? Bias training is training that is about revealing the biases or prejudices that exist in our world. And it is about helping people find solutions and strategies to be able to better navigate or even overcome these biases. I think the first thing that I want to do for our listeners is to be really clear about what it is that I'm talking about when I say bias. And the way that I like to think about it is that there's three kinds. One, there's internalized bias that shows up in how we, all of us as individuals, think about ourselves and others. There's interpersonal bias, which shows up in how we interact and engage with people. And then there's systemic bias, which is when policies and processes are designed to have that prejudice in their design, right? They're designed to favor what kind of person or community over another. In terms of how it applies to the venture space, you know, I think there's, this is an incredibly big topic, kind of a big question, because really bias is all over in our society, not just in the venture space, but a couple of things that I like in my research started to come up with was noticing that from a staff's perspective, women start companies at twice the rate of men, yet women comprise only 16% of tech founders. And when we look at funding, for example, founding teams that include a woman outperform their all-male peers by 63%, but female CEOs get only 2.7% of venture funding, while women of color, looking at that intersection of being a woman and a person of color, get 0.2%. So we know that bias exists in our world. We know that bias exists in the venture space because these numbers are not normal. Like these things wouldn't be happening without clear intentional prejudice and bias showing up in the ways in which money is allocated, who gets visibility, all of that. So in terms of what can bias training do and what does that look like? How do we apply bias training to the venture equity space and how has it helped solve the issues or push the needle forward? Yeah. So I think rather than thinking about bias training as either effective or not effective, I think it's probably more helpful to get a little bit clearer about the things that bias training can do well when it's done well and the things that maybe it just isn't set up to do. Because the reality is when we're talking about being able to navigate bias, there is no one single solution to any of this, right? There is no silver bullet. So a couple of things that I like to think about are one, I think that bias training works really well when it can illuminate to people how bias exists at all the levels that I talked about earlier. Typically, a lot of bias training where they sometimes don't go deep enough is when they focus a lot on individual or interpersonal behavior. If we restrict our lens of where bias exists just to the interactions that we have with other people, then I think we do a disservice to the complexity of the topic because we're missing out on why those biases exist in the first place, right? These larger systemic structural biases it's incredibly important to be able to name and understand the role that those play. Bias training works really well when it shows that these systems are working exactly as they're designed to. The second thing that I would also say is that bias training works really well when it's paired with follow-up and opportunities to hold people accountable for changing their bias practices and behaviors, right? Bias training cannot just be like, cool, we all showed up to this Zoom call. We had a 60-minute lesson. We're good. Like, no, you're actually not done with the work at the end of the Zoom call, right? Like, you actually have to go on and be held accountable to changing your behavior. It cannot just be about raising awareness. And then the last thing that I'll say is a bias training works really, really well when it's tailored 
and the content is appropriate for the participants needs. I don't believe there is such a thing as like a universal training that is great for everyone. There is no sort of like single solution here. The reality is that people with marginalized identities like myself, we've been on the receiving end of people and systems bias like our whole life, right? And it can actually be deeply harmful and frustrating for me to have to play witness to privileged people recognizing that for the first time ever. That's not a job that I need to be doing for them. That's not a space that I need to be in. So bias training works best when it's tailored and customized to the needs of the audience that is engaging in that. Just recognizing that bias training can't be the surface level solution where we're only looking at the interactions between people and not taking into account the systems. But also, I like to mention the point you brought up about how bias training can't just be a one and done session, that it has to include this follow up and accountability, I think is really important for us to see in this bias training space. I want to take a step backward and look at the big picture of bias training and DEI as a whole. Why is DEI and bias training so important, especially in today's world? So. I would argue that like diversity, equity, inclusion, which is what DEI stands for, right? Like I'd argue that this work has like always been incredibly important. It should have always been front and center in how we just move through the world, not even from a business standpoint, but just in being good humans. I think that like, if we're looking at the landscape as it is today, right now, the time that you and I are having this conversation, there has been an explosion in the last two years of interest in diversity, equity, inclusion for a number of reasons. I'd say like, most among them, the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the murder of George Floyd and the civil rights, racial justice uprisings that have all happened. I think we're moving through a moment in which folks are understanding that, hey, the systems and structures all around us are not okay. Things mm -hmm. are not working right there. We see examples of inequity and injustice left and right. And so when you ask me, why is it important? I think that DEI work, which encompasses these trainings, uh, bias trainings, but also what you were just saying, the, the follow-up, the context, the accountability. All of this is important because I think we need to be in a space where A, recognize the, in the inequalities and prejudices and biases around us, and B, we are actively doing something about it. We can't just recognize their existence and just leave it at that. We have to be doing something about it. We have to be working on ourselves and our people and our communities and our processes to be better. And so bias training provides an opportunity to do that provides an opportunity for us to level ourselves up and hold ourselves accountable and be honest with ourselves about what we could be doing better. I think that's so true. And just the point of how DEI and bias training is not only important in today's world, but should have been something that we talked about, you know, throughout the entire time that even the venture space has been around. I would love to learn a little bit more about what have the programs that you've run looked like and how do you implement these effective measures to make sure that the DEI training is effective for either businesses or leaders? Yeah, I think it's a great question. What I like to do when I am running or overseeing or thinking really intentionally and critically about how to build strong trainings around DEI and bias, I love to bring in the lens that I was able to be given as a student of sociology. And so a lot of the work for me is about helping people understand the relationship between themselves and their systems and the context that we've all grown up with. For many of us, the biases that we carry as individuals are a reflection of our childhood and the communities that we have been a part of and the particular life experiences that we've had. And I often find that folks aren't really given an opportunity to dig in and critically interrogate themselves and their own upbringing. I spend a lot of time with leaders, particularly asking them questions about 
What are your core values? Where did you get that mm -hmm. from? Who are the people that you got to grow up with? Who are the people that surround you, you in your childhood and also now in your adult life? We, when we examine our personal lived experiences with the world, that is where we can begin to start seeing the impact of bias, the impact of structures and systems and shaping everything about us today. So I'll give an example. Really proud to have grown up in Southern California. I identify as Asian American. I grew up surrounded by other Asian people in a majority immigrant community. And I'm really, really grateful for that because what that means is that as an adult, I have never really ever had to center whiteness as my norm. I've always been comfortable and really happy to be able to bring my full and authentic self, thinking about the things that are really important to me as an Asian American sort of everywhere that I go, because I was able to have that freedom, that comfortability. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work in the Asian American space, I spent time meeting other Asians. Many of them do not behave the same way that I do because they may have been the only Asian person in their entire high school. They might have been the like one of two Asians like in their entire neighborhood. And so the ways in which we move through the work are different or the ways in which we move through the world are different, which means that training gives us the opportunity to be able to unpack that and think about what is the where we are in our own journey and what we want to do to change that and be better. I love that example that you brought up of how you grew up in Southern California surrounded by Asians and you didn't have to center whiteness, but another Asian American may have been the only Asian American in their community and how the label of Asian American also has such diverse experiences. And that's really interesting when you come and approach it from the DEI lens. How do you open up those conversations? How do you make sure that the space is inclusive and people can share their experiences in a way that's authentic to them? I'd love to learn more about why you got into the DEI space to begin with. How did you go from studying sociology in college to wanting to do DEI training and wanting to work with leaders and Asian Americans and businesses to help support their strategy when it comes to DEI? The sort of like big kind of critical experience for me that I think a lot about is my first job out of college. So in college, I had all these kinds of awakenings, right? Like I, like many other college students, I became very passionate about social justice. The major in sociology certainly helped with that. I was blessed to be in a community of friends who were all fairly progressive and we all thought critically about the issues of our time and getting to go to school at Columbia, being able to be a student in a big urban city certainly was a huge experience there as well. And so I came out of college with a really strong passion, not just for social justice, but particularly for public education. I was really passionate about educational equity because I realized that growing up in the very affluent suburb of Southern California that I did, I got to go to great public schools and me being a fairly average, like B plus B ish student in high school, I was able to make it to an Ivy league university. That to me was a great lesson in understanding my privilege. And so when I graduated, I joined a teaching program called teach for America. And I became a fifth grade teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was an incredible experience, but the thing that I could speak forever about, but the one thing that I'll share here is that my students were incredible, just the most amazing kids ever. And I quickly realized that so many of the barriers that my students were facing outside of school were showing up in the ways in which they were or weren't able to engage in school. I had a lot of kids who didn't do their homework, not because they didn't care, not because they didn't want to, but because they were busy. They were busy at night taking care of their younger siblings. They were busy at night, like helping their parents work. All things that I never had to think about when I was their age, because when I was in fifth grade and I finished school, I just went home and played video games and then I did my homework. Like my life was so much easier. And so like 
being aware of these broader societal systemic injustices really made me passionate about systems change work. And so that's why I left the classroom and over the years shifted over into doing DEI work within tech and within startups and within venture spaces, because for me, it's about changing the big picture. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier. DEI work is not just trainings for individuals. It is about trainings for individuals so that people can learn to change the systems that surround us to make them more fair and inclusive for the next generation. The DEI and trainings, everything we're talking about, I see all of this as an iterative process. Like we are continuously refining, reshaping, making things better. It is never just a single one and done sort of approach to anything. 100%. I think that kind of looping back, one of the main themes I see is that it's continuous work. It's not something that we can just like solve one time. And also, I think it's really interesting how your experience teaching in Minnesota and learning from that experience really drove you to systems change work. Switching gears slightly, I'd love to talk about unconscious bias training. Why do you think it's so popular right now? And is it actually effective? Oh, I have a lot of feelings about whether or not it's effective or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love this question. Thank you for this. So let's start with what generally seems to take the name of unconscious bias training, and then we can see if we can hash out my feelings about it. Going back to the different lenses and ways in which we were thinking about bias earlier, I think that we can slot unconscious bias somewhere in the middle there, where the whole idea of unconscious bias is this idea that we have biases and we are, for the most part, unconscious of them. We are unaware of the existence of these biases. Now, I don't know that I disagree with that entirely. I think that's fine. That's certainly fair. That's Mm -hmm. certainly understandable. That's why we have trainings in the first place. However, the one thing that immediately comes to my mind is that oftentimes when we frame bias as unconscious, we give our participants, and I say we, I am speaking to other DEI practitioners and trainers and facilitators and whatnot, I think that we often give our participants an emotional out. We allow our participants, the people who attend our trainings, our workshops, our strategy planning, whatever, to either at best avoid feeling guilty for having had biased behavior in the past and at worst, avoiding accountability for actually changing that biased behavior. It creates this idea of, oh, I just didn't know any better. That's the mentality of, I didn't know any better. It was unconscious, which is fair and understandable as a starting point, but definitely better not be your ending point of a conversation. And that that's my sort of issue here is that many times unconscious bias training sort of end with this idea of, well, it's always going to be there. It's inescapable, which is partially true. But what that leaves out is this whole piece around accountability, this mm-hmm. idea of, Hey, yeah, just because it's there doesn't mean we can't do anything about it. And so if that, if there's anything that I want our listeners to take away from that is that your unconscious bias may be unconscious, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. I think that word unconscious is very interesting when we talk about bias training and it gives you an out and not as much accountability. So what is the alternative to unconscious bias training? So how do you make sure that you have that accountability piece? I'd love to introduce a framework to our listeners around thinking about intent versus impact. So when we focus on unconscious bias, to your point, you said it really well, right? Like it it allows us to, to say that, oh, it was unconscious. I didn't know any better. I wasn't thinking about it. All of that is swirling around this question of the intent of whoever might have perpetrated a biased or harmful behavior. When we say that it was unconscious, we are absolving them of any sort of like harmful, ill will, negative intent. But the reality is that if we want to be doing better from a DEI lens, 
The focus of, of our work and our conversation should not be the intent of our actions, however innocent and unconscious they may have been. It should be the impact that our actions had on other people. When we focus on the impact, that is when we allow ourselves to be held accountable to actually changing things, because then we are responding to the needs of those who are actually at the receiving end of whatever biases we are carrying into a particular interaction, into a process or whatnot. So that's the sort of like theoretical framework piece of it. In terms of how it looks, it goes back to everything we've been talking about accountability. Taking this to a more tactical lens for our listeners, some of the strongest organizations from a DEI lens, it's not actually about any visible measure of diversity. I would actually rather point to cultures of feedback. Really strong organizations on a DEI journey have really strong cultures of feedback where folks like aren't afraid to shy or folks aren't afraid to lean into like difficult conversations where leaders aren't afraid to hear from the people that report up to them about ways in which they've been behaving and leading exclusively. That's how we center the impact of our actions is when we create opportunities for really strong cultures of feedback so that we know what the impact of our actions are. Having strong places of feedback or places where people can lean into these difficult conversations is something that's very tangible for a lot of businesses to create. Creating a culture of feedback feels like a very tangible thing where sometimes in the DEI space, a lot of it doesn't feel like things that you can implement or that are harder for businesses to think about implementing. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into this didn't know mentality and how it mm. affects the DEI progress as a whole. What challenges come with this mentality? I know we talked a little bit about the unconscious bias training of it all, but is it a harmful mentality to have? It's mm. a good question. Harmful is a strong word. I don't know that I would go that far, mm -hmm. although it does depend on how the types. Every organization is different. And I do believe I have seen this mentality yielded in harmful ways. So maybe let's start there. Yeah, I mean, it can get harmful if meaningful conversation about the impact of a leader. Let's take a leader, for example, right? Let's say hypothetically a leader is behaving in a way that's very exclusive, that's very harmful. If we are continuously giving them an emotional out, a way out by saying they didn't know any better, then we're not actually addressing any of that behavior. And that toxic behavior is going to leave damage on the organization, its culture, and its employees. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it can absolutely be harmful. At another lens, I would also say that if it's not harmful, it's just not efficient or it's just not effective. The reality also is that if we take an individual person-by-person -person lens to DEI work, which is what the didn't know better mentality points us towards, then again, I think that sort of keeps our focus of attention off of actual systems and structures and policies. I love sort of thinking about systems change work as the core of what DEI is about because people come and people go in any organization. But when we build policies and processes that are oriented around equity and inclusion, that provides a foundation for what kind of behavior is acceptable, right? That gives us the common denominator that we can point people to instead of jumping from person to person being like, have you done the work? Have you done the work? I don't know. That just sounds really tiring to me. I'd rather focus on like building that common knowledge, that shared experience, that systems change work that sort of grounds everyone together. This may or may not be useful to listeners as well, but just going a little bit deeper on that thread, another reason why this piece is so important is because if we're not actually fundamentally changing the culture of any of these things, then if we try to focus on diversity without actually addressing any of this other stuff, 
then really all we're going to end up doing is bringing people into an organization from a talent perspective, into a, a cycle of toxicity, into a cycle of negative culture. And that's not good for anybody. That's not a sustainable way to grow an organization. It's not a sustainable way to build a community, to build a business. And so the reason why I love this work is because I, I truly believe that like through systems change work, it allows us just to be laser focused on the root cause of any of the issues that we're experiencing. And what I've seen time and time again, gives people much more clarity on what they should actually be. So for our audience who maybe are business owners, are leaders in their space, where can they get started when it comes to DEI? They're listening to this podcast, maybe they have some DEI training at their business or they've implemented some systems, but how do you make sure as a business leader these trainings are effective for your business or how do you dive into the space if you haven't touched it at all? I think it's that if you are just starting out, the first and most important thing to think about is what is your why? Like, why does DEI matter to you? When you say DEI in your head, what are you thinking about? What are you referring to? And why is that something that matters to you? Like in a very personal way, I really believe that leaders of any business at any level need to have a clear understanding of that. And by the way, it cannot because you don't want to get canceled. That's not a good enough reason. Like you need a deeper reason. That. And the reason why I would start with this piece around why is because the reality is that DEI work is very broad. There is no single set game plan for every organization to follow. Every organization is going to have different priorities, different things that bubble up when you do eventually build out a strategic plan for DEI. But if you don't have a clear understanding of your North Star, of your why, then you're going to get distracted and pulled in a million different directions because the reality is inequity exists everywhere. And so whether it is because you as a founder have a really strong sort of personal reason in your lived experience for why DEI matters, great. Or maybe it's the role, it's the specific sort of objective that your business exists to fill, right? If there's a strong sort of like DEI connection there, great, amazing. If it's about just being part of this broader sort of social change because everything you've seen in the last two years has really touched you and you want to be a part of the solution for society writ large, great. It could look like many things, but I find it incredibly important for folks to have their personal why distilled because that ends up driving everything else. And it also ends up being the thing that keeps you going when you when you start to make mistakes. DEI, nobody ever does it perfectly. We all make mistakes all the time. The thing that gets us back up on our feet to keep going is when we can reground ourselves in the why and keep I love that. And I think it's so important for whether you are the leader of your business or a leader of a small team within a business to understand your why when it comes to DEI training. I love that you bring up your personal why and not just a corporate reason to why we need DEI training. I'd love to turn and focus the last couple of minutes on the podcast about Asian Americans. I know we touched briefly on it earlier, but I'd love to learn about what are the biases that Asian Americans face today and what are small tangible steps we can take to mitigate this? I'm so grateful to you for bringing this up because oftentimes Asian folks and the things that we experience are not given any sort of like screen time or, and the reality is there's so much we could talk about. A couple of quick stats that I'll share out for our listeners. Asian Americans are among those in society that are least likely to feel that they belong and are accepted here in the U.S. Only 29% of Asian Americans in a recent survey said, yes, I feel like I belong and are accepted here. There was another study that also found that around 21% of folks in the U.S. period believe that Asian Americans are partly responsible for COVID-19. We are not. I don't know what else to say there other than we are not. 
And yet one in five people seem to believe that we are. The other stat I'll also share is that Asian Americans are represented in 6% of executive and senior leadership positions in corporate America. And so there's a lot of terms and vocabulary that's used to describe some of these things. There's this idea of the model minority myth that Asian folks are really hardworking. We're really quiet. We're great workers, but maybe not great leaders. That ties in this concept of a bamboo ceiling, which the term used to describe the gap of Asian folks in representation and leadership. The bottom line that I would say here is that Asian Americans are an incredibly wide, varied, and diverse community. And so rather than pinpointing or specifying any of these things, the advice that I would give to our listeners and especially leaders in any way, shape, or form, pay attention and listen and look out for the folks in your community that identify as oftentimes we are the folks that are forgotten in broader initiatives that are meant to support people of color. We are often left out of reports of anything that is about DEI period, because there is this sense that Asian folks either are not important enough to be part of that conversation, or we're doing just fine when the reality could be very, very different. I will share a quick story here. I have the luxury of being a coach for Asian Americans. And I was once chatting with a woman who was an executive assistant to a CEO at a major organization. And she had revealed to me that in one of her conversations with the boss, the CEO, the boss said, Hey, you're an Asian woman. My last three executive assistants have all been Asian women. You're all doing a great job. That was what he said to her. It was supposedly going back to her intent versus impact thing, right? Like the intention was to praise her and her community. What I take away from that story is clearly this leader has an image in their mind of who are the types of folks that are well positioned to be his executive assistant. And that is the barrier that Asian women are facing. That is not something that gets enough attention. And so these stories are everywhere in our community. Another thing I'll also share, I cannot tell you the number of times I've met other Asian folks who come to me for coaching who have been told by their managers that they need to go to Toastmasters to become better public speakers. I don't know why this is a thing. Apparently we're just really bad at public speaking. We're not, I don't know, but these are the kinds of experiences that are out there that just people don't talk about. I know that some of these things can seem trivial compared to the injustices that are very visible for other communities. I want to name and acknowledge that. But I also think that if we think about death by a thousand cuts, these are the cuts that we receive, right? Like over the course of our lifetime and our career, these messages about who we are supposed to be. February of 2021 was when anti-Asian attacks on the street were becoming the most visible and the most horrendous. And yet it was also Black History Month. And I remember many leaders in the Asian community feeling really weird about like, hey, can we draw attention to this during this time? Because we also understand like how deeply entrenched anti-Blackness is and how deeply violent anti-Blackness is in our country. The thing that I would say to that though, is that even this idea that there is limited space for DEI conversations is one that I would love for us to all challenge. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about guys, not just about a single training where you're like, haha, I did it once and now we're good. Similarly, right? Like, it's not like there can only ever be five minutes at the end of every sort of like company-wide, like town hall to talk about these things. Like, no, like as long as these things are like occurring and happening for different communities, why don't we have the space to talk about all of them? Why do we feel like we have to prioritize the quote unquote worst one? Isn't this stuff important enough that like all of it should be held and discussed and made front and center? I think it can be. That's a huge light bulb moment. I think that just went off in my brain. Just this idea of the DEI space is not just a pie where if you're taking a slice out of the pie, you're taking some pie away from other people. I think you're so right in terms of why do we have this mindset that we have like 
limited time and limited energy and effort towards DEI for all minority groups when the reality should be is a space where people can bring up issues that are happening and have discussions without this worry that they're taking time and effort away from maybe another group or another issue that is presented. Because we're all important, right? All those things that we're dealing with are important. So 100%, yeah, 100%. Well, as we begin to wrap up the podcast, I'd love to hear more about how people can continue to follow your journey and follow the work that you're doing and get involved with the DEI space and bias training as a whole. Where and how can they do that? Yeah, of course. So folks can find me on LinkedIn. That is usually where I'm most active. So feel free to reach out. Once again, my name is Richard Leong, L-E-O-N-G. Would also love to encourage folks to follow the DEI consulting firm that I'm super lucky to work at full-time, which is called Collective. You can find that pretty easily through my LinkedIn profile as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I know that I definitely took away so many great insights and learned a lot about the bias training world. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you and all of this. The NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center is proudly hosting and producing this podcast. The center is a nonprofit that is aimed at building a better path for entrepreneurs worldwide by improving inclusion, access, and knowledge in entrepreneurship. None of what we could do today would be possible without our amazing support from our sponsors, including NASDAQ, Lehigh University, Airbnb, Bank of the West, KPMG, Wilson Sonsini, Woodruff Sawyer, HubSpot, NASDAQ's Foundation, BPM, and California Community Colleges. My name is Waylon Chong, and I'm so excited to bring you along this journey with me.